Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. And we are recording for Contrarian's Corner forever after Colin, a Cinderella story. Yeah, was that the working title or is that actually what it was released as? It shows up in Rotten Tomatoes with the full title. Okay, it says in promotional materials it was known as Ever After a Cinderella Story. Because I think that was on the DVD box you had, but I don't know if it actually said a Cinderella story in the movie after it bombed in opening weekend they just decided they needed to make it a little clearer that it was a cinderella story <laughs> and they needed to put that margot roby was the, at the helm of it yeah. no joker in this one no the first the teaser trailer was cinderella just basically saying that she was done with mr j with what's his name um jared leto D- D- doug grace scott <laughs> yes. as the joker and angelica houston as uh kill shot wasn't she in no she wasn't in not yet yeah give it time she's not part of any superficial fantastical franchise yet hello and welcome back to the contrarians where we're right and you're wrong my name is alex joined as always by my peruvian counterpart julio julio we're here for part two of our drew barrymore just kind of bridge filling some (laughs) gaps here um spontaneous yes. Drew Barrymore uh two-parter in between just an absolute ridiculous amount of terminator action <laughs> we're here to discuss the 1998 uh romantic comedy fairy tale old english style it was the prelude to um shakespeare in love of getting american audiences groomed and ripened for uh, an old English style story. I mean, if you go further back, or rather, further forward, it was a prelude to all the live action adaptations that Disney's been throwing our way. Yeah, this was the test run. <laughs> yeah, Andy Tennant, he had his ear to the ground even back then. If this is your first time listening to the Contrarians, we appreciate you listening. And just to kind of fill you in on what we do here, as we like to say, we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine. Find a movie that's highly rated or certified fresh. Uh, make a case for why it necessarily shouldn't be. On the opposite side of the coin, we'll find a a movie that is low rated, a nasty green splotch uh, or rotten. Make a case for its positive merit. Um, being that Ever After is 91% on Rotten Tomatoes, we will be arguing against it. If you want to know how we really feel, hang around for the second half of the podcast, appropriately entitled Real Talk. The previous Drew Barrymore outing we did, um, we well we've done in the past um, 
But it never been kissed. Never been kissed. Which so was, was blanking on it. It was a gray area. Yeah. And previous to this, we did her 2003, 2002, 2004, somewhere in there. Uh, it was called, it, I was told it was a comedy, but uh, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, Duplex with Ben Stiller. And that was a lowly, uh, rotten film that we had to make the best out of. So now to finish the sample yes. of Drew Barrymore's tomato meter career, we're with the fresh. That we are. Uh, being at 91%, it does mean there's a whole gaggle of people that enjoyed it, including Drew Barrymore herself. I read that uh, she said it's, it's, a one big of her, fan. <laughs> it's one of her favorite movies she made. Really? Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a bona fide Drew Barrymore vehicle. Yeah. It'd be fun to get dressed up and all that shit. You know. Make out with Doug Ray Scott? With, with not Wolverine? Yes. Sure. Yeah. Hang out with Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> yes. Why not? Work for Bruce Willis. <laughs> Um, all right, so we got a handful of fresh quotes from the Rotten Tomatoes website. We have Betty Jo Tucker from Real Talk Movie Reviews who hey. says, Ever After presents a plucky Cinderella for today's women and beyond. And this was late 90s. Mm. This was before being a feminist was trendy. <laughs> uh, Jeffrey M. Anderson from Combustible Celluloid says, A delightful movie. Full of feisty, three-dimensional characters romping through comedy, romance, and otherwise gloriously colorful moments. I didn't know that you could use romp as a verb. <laughs> romping through. Mick LaSalle from the San Francisco Chronicle says, The best Cinderella movie ever. Wow. I know. Has he seen any other Cinderella movies? I don't know. And finally, Jeff Weiss from Deseret News Salt Lake City says, A cut above the revisionist versions of classic literature we've had to muddle through in recent years. Yeah, it really seemed like the mid to late 90s there was uh, a swelled interest in so, so 19th what, century France or Britain. So what is he throwing shade at? Like Emma? I, Sense and sensibility. <laughs> that's the thing. I, I'm saying that there was a swelled interest, and I'm just blanking on any well, it, it, real it, titles that came your out. Your interest in particular was not swollen. No. I, <laughs> not I, was, I was still in elementary school, like on the verge of middle school, so it was... I don't even remember what I would have liked back then. It was Drew before Barrymore? Super, well, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Wedding Singer. That's where I knew Drew Barrymore from, because Adam Sandler was funny. I feel with a movie as literary as this it's appropriate to actually read a sampling to kick us off so we go to the the works of sir wikipedia <laughs> please tell me it starts with once upon a time <laughs> it does not um <laughs> sir wikipedia it's actually written very similarly to the uh, smoke and aces breakdown that they had <laughs> vivacious magician uh the story goes back to a Renaissance era of France in 1502. Augustus de uh, Barbaric. Bar- How do they pronounce their last name? Barbaric. Barbaric. I'm guessing. Barbaric. <laughs> uh, is a widower and the father of an eight year old Danielle. Uh, Augustus marries Baroness uh, Rodmila de Gent, a haunty woman with two daughters, Marguerite and Jacqueline, and also gives Danielle a copy of Sir Thomas's Utopia. The next day, while leaving for a trip, uh, Augustus suffers a fatal heart attack and collapses off his horse. His dying declaration of love is directed towards Danielle, sparkling a lifelong jealousy uh, of the girl in the Baroness. Ten years later, the manor has fallen into debt, and Danielle is forced to work as a servant along with Paulette Maurice and his wife, Louise, 
for Radmila and her daughters, Jacqueline is the only one out of her family to show Danielle any kindness. One day, Danielle stops a man from stealing her father's horse only to realize it is Prince Henry running away from the palace in frustration. He gives her 20 gold franc in exchange for her silence of the incident as he is fleeing. An arranged marriage is set by his parents, King Francis and Queen Marie, to Spanish Princess Gabriella. The royal guard catches him, however, after he stops to recover the Mona Lisa for Leonardo da Vinci, which has been stolen by gypsies. <laughs> Meanwhile, Danielle uses the gold Henry gave her to buy back Maurice, whom Rodmilla sold to Cartier, and into slavery to pay off her debts. She dresses as a noblewoman and confronts the cargo master, taking the slaves away. Henry overhears Danielle arguing with the cargo master and orders Maurice's release. Impressed with her confidence, Henry insists and begs for Danielle's name until she finally gives him the name of her deceased mother, Nicole de la Crate, and then adds Comtesse on it. I am disappointed that Sir Wiki of the Pedia did not simply say, hey, it's Cinderella. But live action. <laughs> that, yeah. So, rounding it out, King Francis tells Henry that he is throwing a masquerade ball where he will choose a bride by midnight or wed Gabriella. Meanwhile, Radmila schemes to marry Marguerite uh, to Henry, finding excuses for the two to run into each other. And that brings us to here, to now, <laughs> to Cinderella. <laughs> So that it should have just been the plot. See Cinderella, nineteen forty, whatever. Yeah, uh, it's crazy because, really, I'm not kidding. This is the precursor to everything people hate about the Disney live action adaptations of today. Mm-hmm. It just takes a beloved animated classic, strips it out of all the magic, the fun stuff, the songs, and introduces a lot of darkness. It's the, the the Batman v Superman of the Disney universe where, you know, there's a lot of crying. <laughs> there's a, a lot, lot of, of fake accents. A lot of fake accents. <laughs> it, it just, it's so gritty and miserable. Yes. Uh, I mean, I don't remember this much crying, this many tears in, in the original Cinderella. I do I not remember. remember I do not remember people being sold into slavery or whipped. Yes. Oh, we'll get to the, <laughs> the, the crossfade whipping. <laughs> the most pressing question is, and this is something we talked about in our Never Been Kissed episode. When has Drew Barrymore ever been an outcast? <laughs> yes. How is she? Just on the strength. I mean, I don't want to be superficial, but on the strength of her looks alone. She well, should be able just to just rise above she, the... Yeah. <laughs> Me, uh, Melanie Linsky, uh-huh. Jacqueline, I would buy her as potentially a social outcast. She's very shy and reserved and She's introverted. awkward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Drew, Drew Barrymore, Barrymore tries to be awkward. And yeah. The most awkward thing is her accent. See, that's... I I would believe Drew Barrymore in a, in a Cinderella adaptation that really was just like a, a Who Framed Roger Rabbit where we have like birds and stuff drawn in because i could see her interacting with yes you know the wildlife and the uh magical creatures of a disney-esque universe i thought you were gonna say it was uh who framed roger rabbit in the sense that everything is animated around her and she's the only live action thing so it's like of course it's really awkward <laughs> she doesn't fit in here but yeah casting her in a gritty version of this is like i i don't know if fucking christopher nolan cast harvey firestein <laughs> as commissioner gordon <laughs> It just it, it's totally inconsistent. You can't some 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 actors and actresses are 
they have the ability to disappear into the role. Mm-hmm. Harvey Firestein doesn't. Drew Barrymore doesn't. <laughs> Drew Barrymore. It doesn't mean, they're doesn't any mean less there's anything wrong with them. It's just that you don't cast them in certain parts. Cast in a certain part that she is accustomed to, the Baroness, uh, Angelica Houston. She's, she's just mean. She's the poor she's man's the Meryl e- Streep. The evil stepmother. It's like when you can't get Meryl Streep, a Meryl Streep would not be caught dead in a movie like this. <laughs> so then you ring up uh, Angelica Houston and then it's like nobody told her that this was a kid's story. <laughs> yeah, she she goes for the jugular. I, I think she read this not unlike Joaquin Phoenix read Joker. And it was just, I'm going to take this to the darkest depths of possible humanity. This is my chance. This This is my Oscar. <laughs> yes. Uh, Marguerite, played by Megan Dodds. Uh, I'm not overly familiar with her. Uh, we mentioned Doug Gray Scott plays uh, Prince Henry. And I guess the only other real character of consequence is, of course, Leonardo da Vinci, played by Patrick Godfrey. <laughs> what were the odds that in 102 official episodes of podcasting, we would have da Vinci show up as a supporting character in two movies? You never know, man. That's the most fantastical, the only fantastical element in this movie. Well, I was going to say, so the the summation there I went through is obviously brought us up to about 20 minutes into the movie or so. (laughs) And um, it's Cinderella. We're not going to beat you over the head with it, at least from that aspect in terms of this poor girl is with her stepmother and stepsisters that don't like her. They've pretty much made her their uh, servant. She meets the prince who's arranged to be wed, but doesn't want to do it. Yada, yada, yada. They hit it off. And uh, the first scene of their interacting, uh, I'm sorry, there's the horse scene, but the one that I kind of finished on where she barters the deal back to get her fellow uh, maid's husband back, Maurice. The That's the first scene, I think, where they allowed Drew's confidence to kind of shine through. Right. And she just dwarfs Doug Gray Scott here (laughs) in terms of ability and presence. Much like Hugh Jackman for the remainder of uh, Doug Gray Scott's life and and career, Drew shows him that she's the real deal and and he can only be second best. Uh, But they do hit it off. He, I think at this point, doesn't really quite know he's smitten with her. But one thing I found myself noticing here from this forward is there's a much more interesting movie here that's not Cinderella. There's like this. Well, this ni- is not Cinderella, Alex. <laughs> there's like this 19th century Forrest Gump possibility we have on our hands here with Prince Henry. He's like this tennis player. He's friends with Leonardo da Vinci. Like they just happenstantially look at the Mona Lisa one day. It's like every time we're with him. And I'm more talking about Prince Henry. I'm not talking about Doug Gray Scott. <laughs> Just I'm the talking character. about there's the germ of an idea of a better movie here, right? Because as part of the of the of bringing the Cinderella story to realism, they try to to just make Prince Charming a character. Mm-hmm. So they give him a name. And they give him flaws. And they try to make it realistic, but there's still the, you must be wed in five <laughs> days at midnight. Yeah, there's there some, some conventions they just can't break. and it, it, but the, the most ridiculous ones. <laughs> I kept waiting for, at the very end, for the king to go, well, am I a sultan or am I a sultan? You can marry whoever you want. Uh, they, yeah, they create this character that really, I guess, could have been played in a more charming way 
<laughs> but Doug Ray Scott was just kind of, I guess he faced off with, with, well, he faced off against Drew Barrymore and she, she Won. showed him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then she was the alpha for the rest of the movie. So yeah. all he can do is just follow her around like a puppy dog and, and yeah, kind of miss out on all the possibilities of having this, this character interacting with so many other historical figures. <laughs> what, uh, it seems like also with these Cinderella stories, when it's animated, we kind of let certain things slide that we don't yes. in other situations. <laughs> um, even up until this point here, and again, we're just speaking in the first act of the movie, it's like there's got to be a way Drew Barrymore can get out of this life. Yeah, I mean, there is. It's not like her family was completely divorced from 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 the town, right? Her mom was actual royalty or, you know, she was the mm-hmm. Baroness or whatever. So how can, how is it that nobody even acknowledges that, wow, the poor fate that has uh, fallen this woman, right? Everybody mm-hmm. in, in the, they just act like, like she's just a peasant when really everybody should know, no, she's a peasant now, but she is the daughter of a Baroness. Uh, and why do they let Angelica Houston mistreat her? Yeah. She like you said, she comes from royalty, but they just all kind of accept that she's low on the totem pole, except for Jacqueline. She seems to have some sort of uh, pity for her. I guess kindred spirits. We're both awkward, but yeah, she does have friends outside of the house. She has the two maids that she works with that she's friends with, and she also has Gustav, who's her, you know, the equivalent of the gay best friend. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They couldn't go too far, but you know, he paints. He has zero interest in her well, romantically. There, there were no gay people in the 1500s. <laughs> oh, that's that's what it is. Gay people were invented by MTV in the the 80s. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He was. He's not gay. He just doesn't like Drew Barrymore that way. <laughs> but you're exactly right. He, it, you know, the romantic comedy. If this was released in 2001 through seven, he would have been the happenstantial gay best friend. If this was Cinderella starring uh, Amanda Bynes. Yes. In in, in the modern what times. What was the the veiled remake that or uh, Snow White, Snow White, yeah, Sydney White, Sydney White, yes. The main thing I remember from that is because there's the equivalent of like the eight dwarves, right? And it's just like the these dorks, just, right? yeah, morons. And whoever the female rival is in it, they all like walk by her in one point in the movie. And they go hi ho, hi ho. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I've seen that movie. I screened it so that it's ingrained into my memory and. As you can imagine, they still don't really pull off the she's asleep and he has to kiss her very well. But again, some things you let slide in animated movies that you wouldn't elsewhere. Yep. But animated Gustav is not. And he, you know, you don't want to talk about three-dimensional characters. He, If he turned sideways, he would disappear. He's so flat. <laughs> He's just there to, you know... Move the plot along a couple of times. Yes, exactly. Because she's hanging out with him one day, right? And then the prince just shows up. Yeah, no, I think the first time we see him, he helps her uh, get dressed to pretend that she's royalty. Okay. That was that was our introduction to him. It's like, oh, which, again, made me think, That's oh, when you first he's see- the gay best friend. Because, yes. you know, he knows fashion. He, he has access to clothing and all that stuff. Gustav, uh, yeah, he helps the for the first encounter. But then there's, like, another day where they're just kind of just hanging out in their casual clothes. Yeah. They're and, civilians. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and then the prince... I was going to say drives by. <laughs> he rides, rides up on his horse. Because <laughs> she's flying a kite, like which I guess Da Vinci made for her. Yeah. So Da Vinci. And he's like, what is this crazy flying machine? 
What? Why would you put Leonardo da Vinci in this movie? That's what I'm saying. There's a more interesting movie here that's just like, what's da Vinci doing? <laughs> the subversion. The the screenwriter, whoever wrote this movie for Andy Tennant, was trying to go at, for something else. And, and Tennant kept determined to make it a Cinderella story. The absolute temerity of the screenwriter <laughs> to make Leonardo da Vinci just a background character. It's uh, insulting. It's Su- like the closest you get to Suzanne the Grant, Andy Tennant, and Rick Parks. Okay, all just... so you know Susanna Grant was just she was aiming for something else. Mm-hmm. That was when the movie was called Ever After. It, w- it had nothing to do with Cinderella. There was we were far from a colon at this point. <laughs> yes, that, a swing and a miss. You you want to try to make like this movie and place in this wildly historical character and just be like, oh, but you know they just kind of exist in this universe here. <laughs> It's like in Watchmen where they just show Andy Warhol for no reason, but just to have Andy Warhol in a shot. So you have a point of reference in yeah. regards to like the rest oh, of the world. Oh, that's the time period. It's happening in the real world. That's why there's no singing mice. That's why they don't have any guns. <laughs> but the thing is, it's a fucking sanitized version of Da Vinci. Da Vinci was a man whore. Mm-hmm. Da Vinci was like always hooking up with... He was getting in trouble all the time. And this, he's like an affable old man. Right, he's just... Like I said, the equivalent of the fairy godmother. He's got his boat shoes where he's like walking on water. At one point, looks like rain's coming. (laughs) But this scene we're discussing here, Henry pulls up. um, He tries to get information from Gustav about Drew Barrymore, about Danielle. And he's like, oh, I know her. And, you know, it's like a scene from Greece or something. (laughs) Yeah, I think I know who you're talking about, but she doesn't go to the school. Tell me more, tell me more. Exactly. Um, and then he just like makes up this story as he's going along and it's so obvious he's making it up as he goes along, but the prince is hanging on every word of it. I I guess that's, uh, Doug Gray Scott and his agent after he didn't take the role of Wolverine. (laughs) No, it's going to be all right. Uh, tells her, yeah, I know where the, the Comtesse is. She, she's visiting her cousin. She's up there right now all alone. That's the worst lie ever. Because you would think that he would want to position Drew Barrymore's fictional character as far away from Drew Barrymore's real character. But yes. instead, he says, oh, no, she lives in that house. So he's really setting her up to fail because... Like, oh, basically directs them literally to the scene of the crime. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's like that's the easiest place where he could figure out that, that she lied to him. And also, the thing is, really, the prince really is an idiot. The more, than you, the more you think about it... Uh, it becomes clear that that he just doesn't have any brains because he's met Drew Barrymore mm-hmm. already, and she happened to be you know a little muddy, a little dirtier than when he met her again as a as pretend royalty. But it was still Drew Barrymore. If you run into Drew Barrymore, you remember later. It's not like, I mean, you spent the first twenty minutes of the movie kind of trying to piece together where you knew Melanie Linsky from, mm-hmm. you know, and that's Melanie Linsky who is in the background in most of the scenes. <laughs> If you meet Drew Barrymore, even just on the accent alone, you would remember. You'll recognize her later. Yeah. It's not this big mystery of, wow, who is this new woman that just appears? Like, oh, no, it happens to be the woman that was plowing the fields and hit me with an apple. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. I guess he hit her really hard. She hit him really hard for him to forget. But... <laughs> he was seen double the yeah. entire time. Uh, but yeah, Gustav sets, uh, basically, in effect, sets this rendezvous up between the two. I wish there had just been a shot of him just like where it's revealed that he's like this massive sociopath and he's like, yes, sweet, gorgeous chaos. This will ring the monarchy down. (laughs) Uh, So she has enough time, though, to get all dolled up before the prince gets there. They go and spend a whole day together. They're at the library and then they go for a walk after the the horse-drawn carriage breaks down. And it's just, you know, 
what I envision a perfect first date would have been back in 1502. Back in the day. Yeah. Not just you, Alex. Pretty much every screenwriter that has to come <laughs> up with, with a, a, a quirk, like something that makes their their female protagonist interesting and not just a regular girl. Yeah. She likes books. <laughs> they just were missing the shot of when the horse-drawn carriage broke down. She ties her hair up and, like, you know, gets <laughs> yes. in there and fixes everything. Well, uh, they go even further. They 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 make her an action star. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because a ways down the trail, uh, they're encountered by some gypsies who... The gypsies that stole... Uh, da Vinci's Mona Lisa, I guess, in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or is there more than one group of gypsies just running amok the kingdom? I mean, it was the Wild West back in 1502 <laughs> France. Uh, Which, by the way, it's France, but everybody speaks with a British accent. Yeah, no one speaks actual French. So why not just go with the regular accent from everybody? I think Douglas Scott is uh, Australian. Just a melting pot. <laughs> France, 1500s. It just don't just... tell us where it is. We, we got to figure it out for ourselves. It's and then at the end, they're like, it's Delaware. <laughs> um, but Somewhere in the Rust Belt. <laughs> so, yeah, the gypsies are going to steal their shit and basically are just there to kind of fuck with them. Um, they try to beat up Prince Henry. He kind of fights his way out. And they... Because uh, Drew Barrymore comes down and kind of jumps in the fracas herself. And then what's the deal they make with her? That they can get away if she can carry him away? Yeah. So first, the prince. So he's not completely emasculated by the movie. They feel like they need to give him some sort of... He holds his own. Right. He he, he gets a few punches in. And then he says, uh, your beef is not with her. It's with me. So let her go. And then, That's right. And then because Drew is spunky and, and... I am woman. Hear me roar. Yeah. She goes, well, first, you're going to give me back... The dress that you were trying to steal. Second, you're gonna give me a horse because this guy was my ride. <laughs> and uh, and then the gypsy thinks that he's pretty smart and he says, "Okay, I'll let you leave with whatever you can carry." Oh, and then, and then she picks him up, fireman's carry style. <laughs> yes, yeah, she picks him up on her shoulders and begins carrying. And then she gets down the hill, and the guy is just like, ah, "I'll give you a horse. I'm just messing with you." And then they just end up partying with the gypsies all night. Yeah, she was in a hurry to get back home, so she wouldn't be found out because yeah. she's you know she should be cleaning the stables but or then whatever. they let her sample the the booze like joaquin phoenix makes in the master and <laughs> she's like what is this delightful concoction <laughs> and uh, of course it leads to her and uh prince henry having their first kiss around a bonfire uh, what was the movie oh it was uh it was camille right or we're talking about the open mouth kiss yeah they go at it here yeah the prince and drew barrymore and, and they're so they're sucking face, but then like the head gypsy comes in like Frigo in Adventureland. It's like boner, you've got a boner. He comes in and like just completely. It turns into for a brief moment a college party movie. Pretty much because the way they react to it was just like oh they're, they're suddenly bashful. <laughs> he just comes oh and points and laughs. Uh, he returns Danielle back home late in the middle of the night. She's awoken the next day. It looks like a fucking shot from Hocus Pocus with Angelica Houston and then the two stepsisters. Because she's like poking her with a broom. She's like, get up and make us breakfast. And Drew Barrymore says something to the effect of, make your own breakfast. She and forgets her place. Yeah. And Marguerite is like the biggest bitch of them all. Because she tries to steal some of um, Danielle's mother's clothing. Right. Like a dress and some shoes. And... 
um, in doing so, insults Drew Barrymore's past mother. And so we get our action scene in the movie where Drew Barrymore punches her in the face. Sends her flying across the room. She takes a hell of a bump off the punch. And then it leads into like a Benny Hill sequence of them chasing each other around. And then the book that was left to her by her father, Marguerite's like, I'm going to throw this in the fire if you don't give me the shoes. So she hands over the shoes. And of course, Did, but that's so stupid dumb. old man, I'm a snake. Yeah. And she throws it right in the fire. How could she not? That's one of the most exasperating things about this movie is that Drew Barrymore is really smart and really streetwise until the script requires her not to be. Yeah. Here, anybody in the audience knows that that book is going into the fire, whether she gives uh, her stepsister the shoes or not. And yet she hands them over. And there it goes. Well, she should have done it just to fuck with them. She should have thrown the shoes into the fire first. Oh, man. Mindfuck. That's that's the badass move. That's, yeah, JGL at the end of Looper shooting himself. (laughs) Yes. So here comes one of the most jarring moments in the movie. We do a crossfade from what's gone on here. Like basically Drew crying over this book in the fire. Uh, A crossfade to her in bed having been whipped. um, Numerous times. Yes, mercilessly. It's like at least three or four games of tic-tac-toe on her back. (laughs) She's scarred up and uh, Linsky's there helping her and kind of tending to her wounds. But it's just like the audience... Goes from feeling sorry to her for her to being ungodly uncomfortable over the fact that she was apparently drawn and quartered and whipped in the assumingly the front yard for all to see. It won't be the last time that the movie pulls this trick, this horrible trick in a kids' movie. Yeah, and I guess I understand they couldn't, sh- they didn't want to show it as we've talked about on this podcast before. In very much real talk, one of the most memorably disturbing scenes I've ever seen in a movie is uh, the whipping scene from 12 Years a Slave. So uh, not that I'm asking to see things like that replicated on screen. Jellica Houston's striker. (laughs) Jesus. It's pretty jarring. Could have just basically, I don't know. She could have just been not given food for a night. It's a very tricky business translating these very simple, very uh, vague, in a way, stories, fairy tales, uh, to the real world. Yes. Because once, you, 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 once you're live action and things have like this extra weight, then you can't just imply things. The moment that you see that she's being whipped, you're like, okay, th- th- automatically you assume this is not the first time it's happened mm-hmm. <laughs> because she's not even... Shot, not but, too torn up. Right, it. Drew Barrymore's kind of crying, but not not as in, well, I can't believe this happened. More yeah. like, man, it happened again. <laughs> Me and my big mouth. Uh, and then it makes you wonder, like, what else is happening? And it kind of sets the stage for you to make even horrible, more horrible assumptions as the story goes on, because more horrible things happen. Yeah. And a lot of it, you know, your, your mind starts to wonder what's happening off screen in this world. And now suddenly we're, we're in a world where, where whippings happen. To good people. Marguerite um, and the Baroness have tea, crumpets, what have you, the next day with the Queen uh, and figure out through talking to her about what Prince Henry's been up to and whatnot. They deduce that uh, Danielle has been meeting with him and gallivanting in the fields. And that seems like a, a big leap that they would put that together. They do it pretty quick. Yeah. I mean,. <laughs> All she has to say is like he, he was, was out, out late. Last he night. was out late. He came home late. And they're like, 
damn it, Danielle. <laughs> There's only one other person in town that was out late. And so that becomes their life's mission now to make sure that she crashes and burns. So immediately Angelica Houston makes up a tale of, oh, yes, uh, Danielle is they're still referring to her as the, the Comtesse. She's engaged to a Belgian and fixing to head back home shortly. Uh, running parallel to this, Drew meets with Prince Henry again and wants to tell him the truth, but she just can't. And this, again, results in a massively open-mouthed kiss. <laughs> the, the hormones overcome them in this realistic take on the Cinderella story. They just keep fucking. <laughs> uh, so it brings us to the night of the ball. The uh, bell of the ball, as Prison Mike would say, would be Danielle. <laughs> only she has been locked up by the Baroness and her evil sister. Uh, as their their goal is still to get Marguerite shacked up with Prince Henry. Oh, what happened to the dress? Because she gets locked up because the dress is, has gone missing. The dress and the and the shoes. Mm-hmm. And so they're convinced that it was her. And she's like, well, I don't know where they are, but I don't give a fuck. <laughs> oh, yeah. She said I'd rather die or something than we- see. She does the Charlton Heston from my cold, dead hands. <laughs> yeah. So, so she gets in trouble. She's put in the corner. Yeah, she's locked away. Locked away, and uh, I love the shot here of her, the two old maids trying to help. They're like they're Jessica Bealing it. They're, they got the Swiss <laughs> Army knife and they're trying to pry the, pry the lock open. Uh, but the prince sends his men, or is it? No, no, no. Uh, is it Gustav? Maurice, Maurice, Maurice goes to get Gustav. That's right, and then tells him that because Gustav dabbles in painting, he should go get Da Vinci. That's right. Da Vinci comes and gets her out. Right, because yeah. Da Vinci is a genius, so he can overpower the lock that nobody else could could break open. That's right, because we have fucking Leonardo Da Vinci as a secondary character we got to <laughs> use from time to time. Suddenly, justify his presence in the movie, I guess. <laughs> yes, Da Vinci is here to pick the lock. <laughs> so Danielle is freed. She makes her way to the ball. And she uh, stopped in the PlayStation store along the way to buy her 99 cent alternative skin because she's like in a butterfly outfit. I mean, it was a a dollar well spent. She gets a hell of an entrance. Uh, But the movie, it's like it refuses to give you an ounce of magic, right? Even in the original story, even before you go to the animated version, the whole idea is that Cinderella dances with the prince. Yes. Nope. Nope. (laughs) We're not going to get there. She's, like, already crying when he's like, no, this way, come. And she's like, no, we need to talk. And he's like, nonsense. Then he slapped what, her. What? And he's like, <laughs> what could go wrong? And then Angelica Houston just jumps in and blows the lid off of everything. Um, you know, Prince and the Popper, any classic Disney tale of feigned wealth uh, or status, I should say. She comes in and makes sure that uh, she's taken down a peg. And the prince reacts like a little bitch. Uh, to me, this is where his character just crosses over to the dark side and there's no coming back. Yeah. The way that he treats Drew Barrymore when he finds out that she's a commoner. <laughs> it's not like one of those things that they were able to change in movies like this um, throughout the 90s and into the 21st century where they would kind of pivot the outrage going from like who someone is more to I'm just hurt because you lied to me. Uh-huh. You nope. should have trusted me. Nope, not here. You're poor. <laughs> Get <laughs> away from me. You're just one of them. <laughs> and they have such an and easy And she calls out. him Henry, and he's, don't you 
dare. Don't be so personal with me. <laughs> Something like that. Uh, but they had the perfect out because they had the king there. And the king has been, throughout the entire movie, his only purpose has been to say, hey, you need to marry uh, royalty. Yeah. And so they could have just had the, the king be the bad guy. The king orders Drew Barrymore taken away, and the prince can't stand up to the king. It's not great, but it's better than him being a complete asshole <laughs> to the woman that he loved five minutes ago. And then being apart for a few weeks and realizing he's really horny, so he needs to hit her up and see what's going on. <laughs> yeah, she was a really good kisser. <laughs> yeah. Da Vinci, draw me a nude. <laughs> So as if that's not bad enough, Angelica Houston the next day sells Danielle into slavery. It's very off-putting because she sells him to this creepy-looking dude. Yeah, we've seen him before once. Making a pass at Drew Barrymore and talking about how big his dick is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's old, older than Drew Barrymore. Older than most people in the cast. Yes, and... Not that there's anything wrong with age discrepancies in relationships. But, but it makes it creepier. None of the affiliation or infatuation is returned here. There's no chemistry. And and he's just being gross. And yeah, and he kind of like licks, licks his lips and is like, me and the Baroness have an understanding. And then she like kind of figures it out. It's like, no. And then his men just come and grab her and take it's her away. Horrible. It is. It's, it's terrible. And it, it fades to black. Kind of like letting your mind wonder, okay, what's going to happen now off screen? You know, she got whipped off screen already. So what is this guy? He's just taking her off and he doesn't seem like a very nice dude. So <laughs> he says, looks like the spiders caught himself a couple of flies. <laughs> In return, she gets a bunch of the shit that she pawned for money. I mean, the, the undertone here is that Angelica Houston is very bad with money, and she has, like, a slight gambling situation um, where she... She just turns to Drew Barrymore and is like, this is how I win. <laughs> Damn it. I was, trying to, <laughs> I was trying to piece that together, how that would work. But, yeah, she, like, loans shit to people and then sells stuff just to buy it back, and it's a very, very uncut gems type situation for the 19th century. When Drew Barrymore goes, you can't do this. I disagree. <laughs> I disagree. We are going to go through with this arranged marriage for Prince Henry to the uh, Spanish princess. And again, an, a scene that's just ungodly uncomfortable. This Spanish princess, Gabriella, is just bawling as she's being led down the aisle. And it's like silent. And apparently this is supposed to be played for laughs. It goes on forever. Because like the priest or the... You know, whoever is trying to go through the whole rhetoric of what uh, gathered here today, and she's just like wailing openly. And we see her stilted lover on the side, just, you know, questioning everything in his life that's brought him up to this moment. It's very, very uncomfortable. It's, it's also uncomfortable. It, it's funny because maybe the best idea in the movie it's also, it, it brings out one of the worst sequences, which is this one, right? Because I like the. The juxtaposition of you just saw Drew Barrymore basically sold to this gross old man mm -hmm. against her will. Yeah. And then you cut to this Spanish princess basically traded against her will to this guy. What's The only difference is that, that Doug Ray Scott, he looks better. <laughs> yes. But, but, but she's just as miserable. So as an idea, as a concept, that's kind of powerful. Mm-hmm. It's a kids movie though. That's you're you're going you're off the deep end here. This is just too dark. It's too adult. Yes. It's a swing and a miss. <laughs> yes. Uh I don't even know if I'd the say that. The bat just went I flying. was about to say it's a foul ball that hits a kid in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and the game kind of stops and everyone's like, "Do we keep playing?" 
So, so the, my asshole is laughing in the background. Yeah. So the it's, and detaining um, Brad in Family Stone when everything's really uncomfortable and he just starts laughing. Yep. The prince realizes this is wrong. You you're free to go now. It took that. Yes. It, it took her basically wishing death to come at any moment for him to be like, ah, oh, this isn't worth it. He's like, I know exactly how you feel. Not quite. <laughs> you got your shit together. She is terrified. So then we cut to Drew Barrymore's situation where Danielle, uh, with her captor, I guess her owner. Um, yeah, it's, uh, like you breathe a sigh of relief because it's like, oh, she hasn't been raped yet. He essentially like forces her, uh, attempts to force himself on her at this point. And this is like the most badass scene Drew has. And it's not played for laughs in any facet, which is we are probably past, for the best. We are past the laughing in this movie. She reaches back and pulls a knife out of his pocket, slices his face open, then she grabs a sword and is like, I'll kill you, pretty much. <laughs> but she says, my father was a great swordsman, and he taught me well. And you're like, we didn't know that. <laughs> All we saw of her father was him getting on a horse and dying. Do you know what I can do with this sword? Henry- Hello, my name is Drew Barrymore. <laughs> <laughs> you killed my father. Uh, Henry realizes what he wants. He tracks down where Danielle is, brings her back. She forgives him. She does. Like, pretty quickly. All it takes is him calling her by her real name. He says, let's go back <laughs> to Dover, Delaware together. <laughs> but it's like all this badassness that you had built up throughout the movie. If nothing else, the movie successfully paints Drew Barrymore as a strong-willed, smart mostly resourceful character that makes a few errors in judgment overall she doesn't take shit from anybody she should have penny laned him here and said like okay <laughs> meet me at, yeah meet me at the palace give me your money and then i'll meet you here and then it reconnects him with i don't know i mean if you're going for the realistic approach and and pro-feminist yeah, approach have, uh she should have penny laned him and hooked him up with um, Jacqueline. Uh, with Melanie Linsky. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That would have been. But no, it, it, I mean, or just, you know, just go all in. She just says, let's just be friends. <laughs> Gets on his horse and just rides off into the sunset to have other adventures. Or she and, says, and like, I'm, behind. I'm sorry, I'm already involved. And then she goes, gets on Da Vinci's horse with him. <laughs> and they ride off. She says, I'm pregnant and it's not yours. Jesus. And he's just like he's Italian. He's just like laughing, and on, like the horse kicks its legs up, and <laughs> I got it, still got it. <laughs> and then we know that they're going to end up together. So the last like six minutes of the movie just exists to uh, humiliate Angelica Houston on camera. She, oh yeah, they dragged that out too. Oh yeah, because just... she's like held in front of the king and queen. You lied to the queen of France, and you know who's gonna speak for you before we like basically put you in a giant catapult and launch you out of town. No, even worse, the the, the worst fate in the 1500s. They're sending her to the Americas. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the nerve of this movie. <laughs> Reginald Trump will take you from here. <laughs> So Drew Barrymore is like, uh, I'll speak for her. And they like, okay, well, you can punish her. And she just says, well, I just, I wouldn't want to treat her any worse than she treated me, which basically means now you're going to be a maid. And... Yeah, do the dishes and do the laundry. Yeah, and then it results in Angelica Houston and the actress who plays Marguerite taking a bump into like a lilac <laughs> dying pool. And so basically they got to paint Angelica Houston like Grimace for one shot. <laughs> One last wild left turn from Andy Tennant into comedy. 
And then we center it back, and it's like uh, it is kind of like the end of the Family Stone, where everyone's all together again. And the you know you have Danielle and Prince Henry and their cool best friend uh, Leonardo da Vinci, the who, gay best friend as well. Yeah, Gustav is there. Uh, the two maids. Yeah, it's like the end of a Disney movie or a romantic comedy where everyone's together again, and then the. The kicker to finish it off is um, uh, Head of a Woman, the portrait by Da Vinci. We find that it was based on Drew Barrymore. Yeah, uh, that's the that's If the she framing. doesn't have that above her bed right now, that, that's just a failing on her part. Uh, the framing device of the movie is basically they stole it from Titanic, right? <laughs> Where they just – they have an old woman – telling the story of Cinderella. Did you think when the movie started that that was supposed to be old Drew Barrymore? Um. Because at the very end, she's like, well, my great, great, great grandmother. Yeah, the closer we got to the ending, it was starting to make me think that like we'd cut back to it and be like, anyway, that was me. Yeah, because especially because the movie has been dark, has gone dark for so long that it I... It goes dark at the end, too, because it's like the, the shit kind of fell apart in France. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. Well, because like the last thing, she doesn't even say they live happily ever after. She's like, most importantly, they lived or something like that. And then... La guillotine happened. <laughs> yeah, the, the I I thought that it was just gonna be we were gonna find out that the prince died mm-hmm. in one of the wars or whatever the French Revolution, I guess you know, and that was just her telling the story of uh, how happily ever after doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> but they did live, and they ended up together. I mean, I think that that he. As you like to say, outkick this coverage. Oh, absolutely. Doug Grace Scott, come on. I mean, there was that scene where uh, she initially wants to tell him the truth, where she's like in that uh, burgundy <laughs> ensemble with like the bustier, where he like eyes her up and down and he's just like, <laughs> I need this. Well, that's that's a, a detail of a character that really they don't delve enough into because when he first meets the sisters, Marguerite has some sort of medallion over her chest. Yes. And there's this close up of the medallion and her boobs and and then cut to a close up of, of the prince just blatantly staring at it. Yeah. And you're like, oh, so he's I thought maybe the take is gonna be that the prince is kind of a perv <laughs> and, and he's not good for Drew Barrymore. No, they just kinda drop that. I, I mean I guess it explains how uh, hungrily just, he goes after her. <laughs> I was about to say, he's just a, a, a young man with a penchant for breasts, which I think uh, a lot of us can relate to. It's really funny because... Then, this the was next, before asses became the big thing. <laughs> the next shot is the, the, because the prince is on his horse and he's talking to Angelica Houston. So Angelica Houston is in, it's a shot from overhead. You can see the prince's shoulder. Angelica Houston is kind of leaning over. And so you can see her... her her boobs Balcony. too. Yeah. yeah, it's like is he looking there too? <laughs> You're making us look. They have a very weird moment for Angelica Houston again. Talk about another swing and a miss because you know in the animated movie, it's okay to to have a villain that's just a villain. Mm-hmm. In the live action, it feels like well we need to humanize them somehow. We need to give them layers. So they give Angelica Houston one scene where. They toy with the idea of making her human. Yeah. <laughs> she's talking to Drew Barrymore. She's like, you remind me of your father because you look like a guy. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. She, I mean, 
it was like we just need to take all of the most evil things about Angelica Houston and feature them for the duration of two hours. For your consideration. <laughs> Angelica Houston. <laughs> yeah, just her face on the VHS cover. <laughs> that was Ever After, a Cinderella story, written and directed by Andy Tennant. Well, and apparently two co-writers that had different ideas about where this movie was supposed to go. Yes, excuse me, uh... Suzanne Grant and Rick Parks. Originally, it was a Leonardo da Vinci story. <laughs> uh, and just a quick look here at Miss Grant. Um, ah, she wrote Aaron Brockovic. There you go. When yeah. she freed herself from uh, from men. That, from the tyranny of men. Yeah, from the patriarchy. The soloist. She wrote that too, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> We've had her on the podcast before. She wrote and directed um, Catch and Release. That's why her name sounded familiar. Yes, it did. Joe. All right, so she went on to bigger and better things. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> she Basically, you know, she started off kind of rocky with Ever After, uh, went on a decline with Aaron Brockovic, but then once Oliphant hit, hit the scene, she was able to rebound considerably with uh, Catch and Release. She should use her, her Hollywood clout, her current Hollywood clout, to get Ever After remade <laughs> with Jennifer Garner and Timothy Oliphant. Good God. <laughs> Jennifer Garner in a 19th century-based piece. <laughs> God bless. I think we've covered it about as well as anyone can. It's Cinderella. It's Cinderella, live action, That's joyless. The, the last line of the movie is Doug Gray Scott looks at the camera and goes, Cinderella! <laughs> I mean, one of the last things he says in the movie is, I guess we'll live happily ever after. Yes. Winks at the camera. Worked out for one of them. <laughs> All right, let's move this along. All right, let's go to real talk. A servant, Henry? Is this some kind of joke? Baroness, you are on dangerous ground. Ask her yourself. She's a grasping Devious little pretender, and it is my duty, your highness, to expose her as the covetous hoax she is. Tell these women who you are. Tell them. Bow before royalty, you insolent fraud. My God, it can't be true. Nicole? Nicole de Longcray was my mother. I am what she says. The apple. That was you. I can explain. Well, someone had better. First, you're engaged. And now you're a servant? I've heard enough. Henry, please. Do not. Address me so informal, madam. I am a prince of France. And you are just like them. <laughs> and we are recording for Real Talk Forever After Cullen, a Cinderella story. Or Thank is you. it? It's something. Definitely a very iconic poster. That poster is just imprinted into my brain from childhood. This was the first time I saw this movie, but I... But you knew all Oh, it. yeah, I knew the the iconography of it all. Uh, released on July 31st, 
I don't know why there was that weird pause there. My brain just stopped for a second. Uh, released on July 31st of 1998. And a budget, a little under $30 million. Looked like the global box office return was, looked around $120 million. Looks good. I was going to say, it looks more recent than 1998. Big part of that is it's a fucking 19th century story. So it's not like there was no Dreamcast chic in this movie. Um of course, starring Drew Barrymore, directed by Andy Tennant, written by Mr. Tennant, Suzanne Grant, and Rick Parks, based on Cinderella by Charles per- Perrault. How old is this story? Let's see. That's crazy because I thought that the the opening was supposed to be, uh, you know, the old lady selling the story to the the Grimm brothers. Mm-hmm. But if Cinderella is by this Perrault guy. Shouldn't she be telling the story to, <laughs> to that guy, not to the Grimm brothers? Okay. Or is it Brothers Grimm? Yeah, the Grimm brothers are like outlaws. <laughs> brothers Grimm are the <laughs> spinners of fairy tales. So the earliest known variant of the Cinderella story is said to have been somewhere between 7 BC and 23 AD. So it's... It predates Jesus? It's old. <laughs> I think... Quite literally, a tale as old as time, despite what uh, Beauty and the Beast may tell you. Now, how many times does she get whipped in in the original version? Jesus, dude. Yeah, she probably so, gets stoned. There and- seems to be some discrepancies, but like I said, the earliest incarnation of the story is said to be between 7 BC and 23 AD, about a Greek slave girl who marries the king of Egypt. So there you go. <laughs> That's not necessarily what we were dealing with here uh, with Miss Drew Barrymore at Same the ballpark, helm. Same ballpark, though. Yeah. Uh, like I said, from what I read, she said it was one of her favorite uh, movies that she's done, which I could see. I bet it was a fun movie to do. Um, she gets to make out for half the movie. Yeah, with, what's his name, Doug Gray Scott, who uh, you, I did not know, you pointed <laughs> out to me that... He was supposed to be Wolverine, but instead took the role of Sean Ambrose in Mission Impossible 2. Yeah. Well, I think that he had taken the role and then Mission Impossible 2 ran for too long. I think he got into an accident as well. It was just like a delay and then he had to be recast. Yeah. Fortunately for him, the role of Wolverine went to Hubert Jackman. (laughs) And no one ever heard of that dude again. Some Australian guy. Some Some other Australian guy. Some Aussie. All right, so 91% on the old RT. Most people were pretty high on this thing, but it does mean there's a lowly 9% of people that had to talk some smack. Some people were turned off by uh, by all the grim and grittiness. Oh, and the poster, Drew Barrymore, of course, got top billing, but Angelica Houston was second billing on the poster. Doug Ray Scott does not get any billing. <laughs> this movie's about women, damn it. <laughs> And he's an asshole in the movie anyway. <laughs> Pretty much. So who who didn't like it and why? I got three rotten quotes from Rotten Tomatoes. Kenneth Turan from Los Angeles Times says, Though director Andy Tennant was enthusiastic about putting this kind of spin on Cinderella, his touch turns out to be counterproductive. Specifically targeting the director as the problem in this production. Susan Luxina from USA Today says, Too much talk, not enough wooing. In the end, Ever After Spell is only half cast. Too much talk. She wanted more, 
more seduction, more... Apparently. Uh, and finally, Stephen Holden from the New York Times says, veering wildly between farce and suds, the movie never makes up its mind whether it's a spoof, a soap opera, or a feminist pep talk. Careful, Stephen. Man. <laughs> You're treading dangerous ground there. Yeah. That's the type of thing you'd be crucified for today. 22 years ago. Not so much. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's... Again, like we've talked about with... Uh, I remember it was part of like our Black Panther discussion, and um, it, it was pretty heavy in our Marvel discussion. Yes, this is a movie that is like it's clear that they want to make women the star of it, from the good guy, the bad guy, and all, everything in between. That's not a reason you should get mad at a movie. <laughs> that that's you know um, that's fine. There's hundreds thousands <laughs> possibly millions of films that that are just male dominated so and just see a critic saying but why don't we see more of the prince <laughs> anytime i hear something like that that's a lot of the the reviews i read about black panther and they're just mad that martin freeman didn't do more <laughs> yeah i guess and it's to me uh, any critic that gets like any public reputation or any visible image that that's what they fall back on to critique a movie uh in 1998 let alone 2020 it's like uh you can find things to not like about the movie without having to just bitch about the fact that you know they're shining light on a new aspect of things and with this it's like yeah i watched it and i i could tell pretty early that this was a movie that they wanted to make women the, the sole focus of it and every aspect and then but that didn't i didn't have any issue with that I mean, because partly because drew barrymore she can carry it she can carry a movie <laughs> yeah. we talked about this with never been kissed drew barrymore is um probably like especially from the 90s the late 90s that era one of the most um mimicked actresses and uh no not mimics not a good term um parodied actresses oh of that time frame, um, they're all like they're always done from a place of love because you know she seems to be like one of the nicest people and ever. Not p many people in Hollywood that I've ever heard have anything bad to say about her. But um, so when you go back and watch movies from the '90s, especially, I could see if like someone didn't live through that and didn't like experience it in real time with her, kind of think that she's just kind of like you know how you or I would think of. Charlton Heston like we didn't live through that so when we go back and watch it he's Charlton Heston to us we're like what's the big deal yeah exactly and so the my roundabout way of saying that is like it's very easy to get lost in the character that is Drew Barrymore and it's hard to do sometimes but when you do kind of splurp yourself out of that and it helps sometimes when we watch these movies through the lenses that we do because we kind of try to just go in like dumb Right. So something like this, you see how magnetic she is and also her ability to carry movies, a, a big budget movie, a summer movie like this. Um, Angelica Houston is good, but this movie could have easily just gone off the rails if you didn't have Drew Barrymore in there holding it all together. Well, yeah, that's it. But yes, I think we have a tendency to take it for granted because it's not acting. Mm -hmm. It's just her personality, her, yeah. her, her her screen presence, it's really what's a lot of it. And it, that's not to take away uh, 
from her craft. It's yeah. just that she has that thing, and and a lot of the projects that she works on count on that on that thing on that. She is not Daniel Day Lewis. Like when we talk about her, we don't say uh, Daniel Plainview or you know Lincoln. You or, say Drew Barrymore. You, it's just Drew Barrymore every time. It's like I, I couldn't really. I only know Julia Gulia as a character name because of the punchline, <laughs> but I don't know any of her other character names elsewhere because it's just Drew Barrymore. Um, and that's a gift. Like there, there's very few actors you can refer to like that as their ability to kind of be the same thing and everything but be great at it and make what they make great would um, you put Sandra Bullock in that category because I was thinking of Sandra Bullock in Speed and how it just blew me away how great she's one in of my Speed favorites. with like you know it being effortless watching that unfold with you in real time like you just being <laughs> re-gobsmacked by that I you, we know listeners know <laughs> <laughs> Blindside hurt my feelings. Yeah, so, I mean, like, if you could forget, I'm sure there's a Drew Barrymore movie that, you know, I'm sure she has her. There's her, not a single Drew Barrymore movie that is as unjustly overrated as The Blindside <laughs> is. Um, no, but I get your point, and that that's a good one uh, in terms of she's Sandra Bullock, but then she's got Gravity too. I'll think of it throughout, like where we're going through this, and I'm sure we'll come up with other actors or actresses to share that similar trait. So did, were you all in with Drew in in this movie as you were watching it? Because to me, it took me a while. And that is, I guess, the curse of being Drew Barrymore is that anything that differs from the Drew Barrymore persona throws you off as a viewer. Mm-hmm. So the accent threw me off. Yes. And even the fact that she was a brunette threw me off a little bit. Yeah, And so it took me a solid maybe 20 minutes to really just accept that as part of the character and, and be able to just stop worrying about it and, and get into the, the rest of the story. It's pretty fascinating too. Cause this was like kind of at the beginning of her big wave. Uh, I mean, obviously she's still an A-lister and all that, but there was that late nineties beginning of the two thousands where she was just in a movie every 10 minutes, it seemed. So to do the kind of departure as that, like even before that wave broke, I think is interesting, but to your question. Yeah. Um, it took me a little bit just getting into it in general because for all the things we've mentioned and jested about, it's still kind of going to throw you off to see Drew Barrymore in a 1500s French movie. Um, and the accent, yeah, threw me off because I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> but then, I mean, some people, to some people, it's again effortless. What to her is effortless in the sense of screen presence and all that stuff, you know. Uh, like Angelica Houston also in this movie also feels like she's. In the best possible way, she's not even trying. She's just it's just coming out so easily. <laughs> yeah, know? it's it's so endlessly fascinating to me when certain actresses and actors are able to effortlessly be so callous and like <laughs> evil. And Angelica Houston is obviously very good at that. She but in this, like you said, to it doesn't it's just the idea of the movie that takes me a minute to adjust to it's nothing in the movie. And once I was in nothing like took me out of it. Yeah. There was like that stuff that we talked about, um, like drew being whipped, uh, being sold into slavery. And then that really awkward forced, uh, arranged marriage scene that was kind of played for laughs that it's like, uh, huh. But, um, it wasn't enough to like take me out of the movie because all of the performances 
around them were still really good. It's just like these things that were in the movie that made me kind of, you know, shift my eyes back and forth a few times. I the, the weakest link in the movie to me is Doug Gray Scott. Yeah, but is that his fault or is that just the way that the character was written? Yeah, I don't know if he was necessarily given too much besides be pretty. Uh, and I mean, the story of Cinderella is hardly ever about the prince. Right. I mean, they give him, I guess, as a character, they give him more than any other incarnation of Cinderella I've seen. Mm-hmm. I, I know there's a very recent one from a couple of years ago that has uh, uh, it's, it's a big name actress, you know, playing Cinderella and one of the guys from Game of Thrones is playing the prince and uh, I don't think oh, it was God, doing I forgot anything. they did do a live action one of those. Yeah, well, it's Sad. supposed to be, I, I didn't watch it, but for the people that like it say that it's just, they didn't do anything. They, there wasn't like a major departure, but I'm assuming that there's also no fairy godmother or <laughs> or talking animals. You know, it's just, I, I would assume there's also no whipping. <laughs> the first film uh, adaptation of Cinderella was 1899. So there you go. Is that... I mean, I, I'm uh, Angelica not Houston was also in that. <laughs> she was, she was one of the sisters. She's timeless. <laughs> okay, they're coming out with another Cinderella next year. I'm looking for the one you had just brought up to see. Um, Kate Blanchett was in it. I as a that. as a stepmother. Yeah, yeah. Richard Madden is the prince. Helena Bonham Carter was the fairy godmother. Oh, so it does have a fairy godmother. God, directed by Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> of Thor fame. Yep. I was going to say f- why, but then it made $600 million. So <laughs> that's why. Uh, or 550, give or take. Disney can spare it. it. Like I said, there was that kind of swelled interest in period pieces like this towards the end of the 90s that I think this kind of struck while the iron was hot. And it, it still did. Like the thing I love about that time frame, late 90s, early 2000s, where even if it was a period piece, you'd still have the credits kick off with some original song from like a, you know, a band of some sort that is obviously not period appropriate. Did you recognize the band in this one? Uh, no, I read what the, the song was. Cause I think it was written for the movie. If I ever remember correctly, I sidebar that the one that I always think about, um, in terms of, not being period appropriate, but still just being perfect was a Pleasantville ending with Fiona Apple's cover of Across the Universe. I don't remember. Oh, I've seen the movie. Brother. Yeah, you got to revisit it because it, it just lines up so perfectly. I thought you were going to talk about A Knight's Tale because that's basically the, <laughs> that taken to the extreme. What does that end with? No, it opens with uh, uh, We Will Rock You. I remember that from the trailers. That's the Heath Ledger movie, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, great movie. I don't remember what it ends with. I'm sure. So the entire movie is full of those choices. Put your arms around me by Texas is what takes us out and ever after. Um, this is a type of movie too that I remember. I took an English literature class in college, and it was the semester I took it was uh, it was British lit. Excuse me. It was when Beowulf came out, the CG the, one. Uh huh. And the professor just like tore it up about, you know, not being at all correct contextually or historically and all that. And I just remember being like, that was my thing. I was like, I I thought it was kind of cool. Ray Winstone yelling at a dragon. I'm down for that. Angelina Jolie. Uh, Yes. (laughs) That was one of those movies that um, the Uncanny Valley 
in my pants was kind of all over the place because she's like naked in that yep. and i'm just like no but that's not really her but it was her body and so i'm just like this internal dialogue that's going on is crazy i say that to say i enjoyed that so i didn't really care i could see this if i uh if i didn't like it and wanted to be like yeah what's wrong with it i would i'm sure there's tons of reviews that talk about like these outfits weren't period appropriate oh and, fuck that yeah i mean that's just that i I'm sure there are people that passionately dislike this movie, but for me, again, there's a few things that took me out of uh, the moment just due to how raw they were and kind of um, hard left is the the phrase you used. And there's definitely a few hard lefts in here, but it's uh, a perfectly fine movie. Like I said, I'm not sure I really have any interest in ever watching it again, but for my first viewing with it, uh, I could definitely see how this could have been a big movie at the time for you know middle school high school girls and it it has it it does have one magical moment that it's i've only seen it once before at least 10 years ago and it was the one thing i remembered and it's just her entrance to the ball i think that the way that they set that, that up shot yeah, yeah. the way they shoot it the way they score it and her performance it's just that's it you know that's that's your one memorable moment uh you know I mean, you can have more than one, but at least that one just justifies his existence as a Cinderella vehicle. It was very absolutely that shot was absolutely in the montage that opened the 1999 MTV Movie Awards. <laughs> of course, <laughs> would bet money on it. Actually, it wasn't. Uh, or it was half of it was, and then it cut to the actual stage, and Drew Barrymore came out dressed, <laughs> and, and then, then she said, "Lose yourself." <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Oh, shit. (laughs) Cut to Marty Scorsese. A 20-year younger Scorsese. (laughs) Yeah. I do love, I mean, that he was an endless, you know, reaction machine the other night. But the lose yourself thing, someone was like, they didn't see it. They asked me, like, well, why did he look so dejected? And I'm like, he didn't. He's just an old man, and there's, like, all these strobe lights going off and shit. He just didn't want to stare at it. God bless him. Yeah. Um, you know, I was I was going to defend Doug Ray Scott's performance mm-hmm. because I was going to say, you know, I actually, the thing I enjoyed the most in the movie besides her entrance to the ball is the relationship. They, they really sold me on the relationship, uh, which I didn't think I was going to at the beginning because when you first meet him, I was like, wow, this guy, I mean, thank God he wasn't Wolverine. That was like, <laughs> you know, and then uh, as she falls for him, I was like, oh, I'm warming up to this guy. And then, by the time that they're kissing, I'm like, hell yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm fully behind this relationship. But then the moment that he acts like an asshole and the relationship goes to pieces, mm-hmm. I completely turn on him again. So really, I don't think it's Doug Ray Scott's performance. I think it's Drew Barrymore's performance that convinces me that Doug Ray Scott is doing well. And then the moment that her character is not interested in him anymore, I, his character doesn't work for me again. Yeah. So I... I mean, I'm sure he's he's fine. I don't know how much you remember of Mission Impossible 2. He he's okay as a bad guy. Again, I don't think it's his fault. It's just the way the movie's constructed. You know, I I think he's just an okay performance so far. Maybe he has a masterpiece that is just not as popular. Uh, Ever sure After is not his movie. Anyone that was 13 or 14 or however old I was when that movie came out, the number one thing they will remember is the soundtrack. Mission Impossible 2 that is. Yes. That was eons ago on this podcast we talked about this but yes for those of you new t- listeners or uh haven't caught completely up 
my thing with Mission Impossible 2. Not Tom Cruise, not Doug Gray Scott. The its la, its legacy and contribution is that it was the last movie that the soundtrack was a big deal. And I will still fuck with uh, "Take a Look Around" by Limp Bizkit. <laughs> it's awesome. Contextually or historically speaking, I should say, isn't that regarded as like the bastard child of the franchise? Yep. Yeah. I I mean, like all movies, it has its defenders. But from what I remember, this like for me, the soundtrack and the the thing they did with Ben Stiller are the best things that came yes. from that movie. Yeah. Because isn't the, the like there's a lot of flying action where they try to do like Matrix style stuff and uh, I mean the stunts are pretty crazy. Remember Tom Cruise's hair? That's for yes. sure. Yes, yeah. uh, you know it opens with the mountains and then there's a lot of stunts and motorcycles yeah, and that's cars. Right. And there's a big motorcycle scene. Yeah, the big fight, the motorcycle fight at the end is with Doug Scott. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's but I I mean I mentioned it in that episode long long ago and uh, I I attended the Mission Impossible marathon and it was just. It was easily the least memorable of them all. It's not just Doug Ray Scott. The entire movie is just kind of a big joke. And mm. uh, he's just... Again, I can't see him as Wolverine. But back in the day, I wouldn't have been able to see Hugh Jackman as Wolverine yeah. either. So it, I just don't want to judge him entirely just on, one, his inability, you know, or his, his bad luck at not, not being Wolverine. His performance in Ever After, which is a movie that's not interested in him as a character, yeah. really, or his performance in Mission Impossible 2, which is a movie that has bigger problems than than his character. So, I don't know. Listeners, if you know of any awesome <laughs> Doug Ray Scott movies. It's so weird to think about anyone but Hugh Jackman being Wolverine. That's the opposite of the Drew Barrymore thing we were talking about, where she's just Drew Barrymore. Hugh Jackman, no matter what movie he's in, is just Wolverine. <laughs> <laughs> He's an amazing actor. He should have won an Oscar for Prisoners. He was Wolverine. <laughs> Let me miss. He was Wolverine. Wolverine. He was just singing. <laughs> yeah. I would say poorly, but then Russell Crowe started singing, and I every, sounded like fucking Adele compared to that guy. Every time you're watching a, a Hugh Jackman movie and he starts getting worked up, you looked at his hands to see if the claws are going to come out. <laughs> no, except uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine. He was Hugh Jackman in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> ever after it, it's it's the cinderella story and you know the the first half uh with hashtag contrarians corner cc it was um i felt that we had to approach it a bit differently than we do because with most movies we do we just kind of basically boom 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 the plot down and it's cinderella so it's going to be easy to tell um so there's really not too much to harp on in the plot or anything like that. So I think that's what we're finding. Except for the differences, I guess. And that's I, I was thinking, how did they pitch this movie? What is what was the elevator pitch? The the high concept, right? It's like it's Cinderella, but without the magic. Which in the, now that we're not in Contrarian's Corner, I mean, I don't have to pretend that I believe that the Disney animated version was the, <laughs> the first Cinderella of them all. So obviously, there was a Cinderella. There were versions of Cinderella before they brought in the songs and the mm-hmm. and the cute animals and all that stuff. But but still, I think that at the time that this movie gets made, whenever you thought of Cinderella, you thought of just what's the most popular version of it. And that's the Disney version, the animated version. And they're like, okay, forget about that. And instead, we're going to be a little more realistic about it. And well, which was... That that was like 1998. That was the late 90s. Like, we want more edgy, realistic type shit. And so that makes perfect sense. And that's why I think this movie could have been 
heavily relatable. And the whole reason this came up was because uh, a girl who's about the same age as us asked if we had ever done it for the podcast because she said it was a favorite movie of hers when she was younger, something along those lines. And I could definitely see how this movie could resonate with people at that point in time. Um, I don't like it at all, but some people feel that way about Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet because it stripped yeah. away a lot of the That's fantastical true. aspects of it. And <laughs> No fairy godmother for Romeo no. anymore. <laughs> no. Um, but that was of that time period. And I think... We, we talked off air about other shit saying it's cyclical. I'll be interested to see if that comes back around because there's definitely, uh, you want to talk about swelled interest. There's like an unstoppable hemorrhage of interest in fantastical things right now. Primarily because the real world is about as scary <laughs> as it's been in a while. Yeah. And um, But I'll be interested to see if it comes back around to where, you know. Now go- you want to bring back the fantastical elements into mundane stories or do you want to strip the fantastical elements from the the latter okay so basically how we got batman begins and like movies like this like a retelling of cinderella or romeo and juliet where it's stripped down to be more realistic well you saw like the the trailer for the new mulan right where it's i'm not dignifying this (laughs) this fucking disney thing they're doing where they they're just fucking remaking everything live action. Well, Mulan. But I have seen the trailer for that. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, if anything else, Mulan seems like the one that would benefit from this because they are really getting rid of everything, even the songs, you know, and 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 the dragon. No Eddie Murphy. I was about to say it's just Eddie Murphy. <laughs> it's just it's not a Murphy dragon. It's Eddie hey. Murphy doing stand up. You know, man. <laughs> uh, she, the trailer looks like a completely different movie. It's not like when you see the trailers of all the other uh, live-action remakes they're doing, where you're like, oh, that's just like the animated movie Lilo in live-action. God. <laughs> where Stitch is just a dog now. <laughs> that ties the two points together. So it'll be interesting to see if that movie does anything. Yeah. Yeah, it, it looks positioned like everybody, even people that are pretty burned out on the Disney remake machine right now, they're excited because the way they're promoting it is the completely different, completely opposite of what they've been using to promote the other ones. It's not, mm-hmm. hey, look how it is just like what you remember. It's like, this is nothing like what you remember. <laughs> Which that shit always has its place too. Yeah. I mean, I do wonder what the take's going to be on this new Cinderella that they're making. You know, are they going to go realistic or are they going to go fairy godmother? No telling, man. It's um... more importantly, who's Josh Gad going to voice? <laughs> He, uh, he he had a shining moment in the Oscars. Like I said, he looked hungover <laughs> as fuck. <laughs> that was that was one of the coolest things. Him talking about there's 49 other Olafs in the world. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's not much more to say about Ever After. It's a fine movie. Drew Barrymore is great. She's a, a generational talent. Um, for the things we mentioned about her, her ability to be her. And everything she does, but that'd still be great. Um, there's, you know, there's probably something that I'm blanking on. I, I don't want to watch any of the Sandler movies she did except Wedding Singer. But for the most part, it's you're usually in safe hands with a Drew Barrymore movie. And I feel that way about this one. It was, like I said, I'm not going to go out and buy it. I will compliment. Uh, I assume this is your wife's copy that we watched on DVD. Yes. Okay. So uh, 20th Century Fox. It's like an original DVD, uh, and the transfer on it is so good. It looked great. It 
makes me so upset. And, you know, we, I've got about another 18 months of this conversation before physical media is completely dead. <laughs> but, man, when we got that first few waves of DVDs up until about 2007 or eight, the transfers were just so high quality. And this is no exception. So compliment that. And then outside of the transfer looking good, the movie itself looks great. It's It can be easy for period piece movies to kind of look disjointed and wonky. I thought this looked really good. So, yeah, um, for what it is, I'd, probably a B plus just because, like, the Prince Henry character, like you mentioned, there's some parts of me and then just some of the hard lefts it takes, I think, for the tone they were going for could have been a little lighter. Really, the one big with for me and for you because we both reacted the same way as we were watching the movie was the 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 big the wedding the wedding that doesn't happen where just the spanish princess is just crying and yeah. it's not funny it's just really uncomfortable mm-hmm. and, and then the problem is that they play it off as a joke because you asked me is this supposed to be funny <laughs> and just as i was about to answer the prince laughs and yeah i'm like well there's the answer <laughs> because he could have had a reaction that was not laughter he could have just look concerned and mm-hmm. they could have played it straight and then you'd be like all right it makes more sense but yeah it goes on for like a few minutes and the the main thing that makes it stick out so much is it's dead silent except for her wailing yeah and it's like hmm this <laughs> this seems off kilter in like i said in contrarian's corner it's underlined by the fact that you just watch drew barrymore get dragged away by these guys, you know, this guy that that it's obsessed with her, that, like, is sexually pined for her. Yeah, so it's just gross and disturbing, and it's a good point to make, but it feels like the way they went about it doesn't jive with the rest of the movie. Yeah, but other than that, I mean, I, I would say three and a half for me. Like, I know I want to give it four chips because I like Drew Barrymore so much, and and it's for a just, two hour runtime, also it, it didn't just flew by. Yeah, it flew by. Yeah. I'm going to stick with three and a half because what the fuck was Leonardo da Vinci doing in this movie? <laughs> just <laughs> seems like such a out of nowhere. The uh, trivia, the study I usually do for these things. Uh-huh. Like I said, I didn't, it didn't yield too much gold, except now I know that the original Mona Lisa was on a piece of wood and not a piece of canvas because someone pointed that out. It's like, actually, the Mona Lisa wouldn't have been rolled up in a tube. Yeah, which is exactly how it read. But at the same time, I was like, hmm, I didn't know that. So now Thank you for your pedantic commentary. (laughs) Hey, now there's a possibility that I can impress a girl with that knowledge. So, And then she'll be like, how do you know that? I'll be like, well, I have a podcast. (laughs) Have you ever watched Ever After? (laughs) Do you know what Rotten Tomatoes is? So that concludes Ever After. That would, uh, is that episode 102. 102. So do we have 103 lined up yet? To be discussed. Yeah. I think we have options. Okay. Uh, so stay tuned. Stay tuned to the uh, Instagram and Twitter account for up to the minute breaking news. Winding things down here, moving into plugs as we usually do. First and foremost, the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. Uh, they provide Last Stand, which kicks us off, and Summer of 99, which takes us home on our uh, numeric episodes. Uh, thefestiveyears.com is where you can go for music, pictures, info, all everything. Your, all your festive years needs. All your festive years needs. Our logo was designed, executed by Hans Ruth Gieser, he of the Mill Demonios Twitter account. 
M I L D E M O N I O S. Also has an email address, mildemonious at hotmail.com. He has two podcasts. He has a zombie novel. He has everything. The man is on top of the world. But you can still contact him if you want to buy his book, Requiem por Lurin. He hosts the Peruvian version of the Today Show. Yes, Nación Combi, available in all podcatchers. Uh, that's in Spanish. If you want to listen to him in English, uh, Living in Peru. It's a podcast about immigrants to Peru in English. That's available in iBox. Um, and he has designed, I haven't shown it to you yet, but he did three alternate logos for whenever we get around to the, the our horror movie mini arc that he wants us to do awesome. like classic horror so he did a tomato that looks like frankenstein a tomato that looks like uh, dracula and a tomato that looks like i guess the mummy it was like awesome. three classic monsters and i was like all right come halloween time we'll do this thing and then we'll we'll replace the logo on twitter that's great uh but yeah uh check out his stuff he's great uh man between all the terminator movies we've watched and just general life busyness the only thing is um King of the Hills on Hulu. I mean, I know seasons two through five of King of the Hill, you know, page and verse. Why not the first one? Not like I, I just haven't seen it as much. Oh. It's like The Simpsons, the first season of The Simpsons. I've seen it probably once or twice all the way through, but I couldn't quote it as much just because they hadn't found their stride yet. So it's not one that I actively revisit. Is that the one where they still look kind of weird? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, anyway, it's on Hulu and I've used that. I've supplemented that as my nightly what I fall asleep to. Um, and then I realized going through it that I never actually watched the last season. I've seen the finale, but I've I never watched the whole last season. Uh, I watched the finale like as it aired and it ends perfectly. Uh, anyway. Is it Hank walking out to the airport and then. Uh, <laughs> uh, no. I don't know the other names. I don't know which female character would have run after him. Uh, uh, Peggy. 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 Yeah. Anyway, the. One thing I didn't know uh, going into it is that um, this is like 10 years old, so I'm not worried about spoiling it. I, I didn't have it spoiled for me, though, which was pretty impressive. Uh, Hank's dad dies, like actually dies. Like they tease it kind of throughout the show. But Was that episode written by Susanna Grant? She's like, <laughs> <laughs> this show is not real enough. Um, and so that's like in the second to last season. And then the last season, he finally gets his dad's like will and testament and what he wants done with his ashes and stuff. And the episode is him and his friends seeing his dad's final wishes through to fruition. And the way the episode ends is so, so silly uh, and goofy, but it like got me so hard emotionally watching it that it, it like it was so weird. Like I started just laughing to myself. It's something not overly funny just because of how well it was executed like not uncomfortable laughter but just kind of like you know when you're incredulous and you can't believe like a writer was able to pull something like that off right yeah so it's so hard for shows like that that are so good and you watch episodes during their heyday i've said this about 30 rock and it's like obviously the biggest thing people harp on the simpsons about is like it's not as good as it used to be yeah it's been around for 30 years it's gonna happen so for King of the Hill to have the run that it did, it went 13 seasons Jeez. and still up until the end being able to resonate as powerfully as it did. I think that's really admirable. So I don't know if it's just a general plug for King of the Hill, but um, I was just very, very impressed going through the final season for the first time that they were able to hold the, the bar so high. It didn't really waver. Once they found their stride, it, they kept it and it didn't really go anywhere. I and it has a proper ending. Yes, that's yeah. cool. Fully conceding 
that our international listeners may not really understand that show that well. <laughs> and by international, I mean anyone that doesn't live in Texas. <laughs> that It seems like a crutch sometimes. People say it's a crutch to fall on, and I will lean on that somewhat. It helps a lot if you are familiar with Texas culture, that show. Um, so there's that. Because they talk about a place called Whataburger that's basically heaven on earth. <laughs> I would imagine if you somehow stick with it for a few seasons, at the one point, it just stops mattering. Because even if you are not a Texan or you've never been to Texas, you understand. That you understand that Texas is this mythical place yeah. where King of the Hill <laughs> happens. I, I th- feel like I remember some guy, uh, a wrestling fan that lives in the UK. I feel like I remember reading an interview with him. Uh, he's like someone of prominence in the internet community. And uh, I think like he said, he thought some of the shit on there was just made up to be funny. And then he came to Texas for like a WrestleMania one year and was like, Oh, this is this is like how these people live here. There really is a twelve egg omelet. <laughs> Thumbs up on that, Julio. I know we're coming off the Oscars. You have anything you want to recommend to the listening audience? Well, uh, I mean, funny you should mention it, Alex, because <laughs> this is Oscar related tangentially. Uh, our friends from Ward Salad, Joe Ketchum, I've been on his podcast a couple of times, and uh, last week he sent me a message and he's like, "Hey, do you want to do a, a special?" podcast episode of whatever documentary wins and i said sure so sunday we're crossing our fingers hoping that the one that because we we both seen all five uh-huh. and we both agreed on which one was the one that we didn't want to do <laughs> and uh luckily that one didn't win american factory took the oscar which was not the one i was rooting for uh-huh. but it's a perfectly it, it's a good documentary and there was a conversation that we had about it so i literally recorded that with him this morning um it's, uh, you know, Word Salad, I brought it up before, it's, it's just sort of a, you know, it's, Word Salad is the name of the podcast, but within it, like the Word Salad umbrella covers different like little shows where he gets to do whatever he wants. So if he feels like talking about time travel in movies, he has a show that's about time travel. If he, if he feels like talking about, um, you know, just doing top five lists, he has a show that's about top five lists. And then his show about uh, documentaries is called Doc and Roll. Nice. And they cover several documentaries i've listened to the episodes of docs that i've that i know like uh american movie and grizzly man uh and now american factory which he said should be out on february 16th so by the time that this episode comes out it should be out already so look up word salad the american factory episode you'll hear my voice you'll hear joe's voice we talk about china (laughs) we talk about capitalism it's a lot of fun excellent All right. Well, that is going to do it forever after. Goodbye. (laughs) So that's going to do it forever after. As always, we do appreciate y'all listening to the Contrarians where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time.